it's a lot easier to have financial planning conversations when you have a stable income for things you can do with money, earn, save, spend, and invest and give actually five. But the number one thing is earning because it makes the other four possible. When we start working with, you know, freelancers and contract workers, their earning is very much intermittent. It creates a feast or famine cycle. We have this need to have not only financial literacy conversations, but financial psychology conversations. The narrative has been, we want to be our own boss. We want to have the freedom to earn the way we want, but it comes at a both financial cost and an emotional cost. And all of this research, the research that I've done has really now posed a question in my mind, which is, it's not just about our relationship with money, but it's about our relationship with earning. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-Word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am delighted, I am pleased that you are back for another week, another fascinating conversation. Who are we talking to this week? We have a repeat guest. We have Dr. Alex Melkuyam. Who is Dr. Alex? Well, he is a licensed marriage and family therapist and the founder of Financial Psychology Center in Los Angeles, California. I did have to ask him, about how his Los Angeles Kings are doing after my hometown, the Edmonton Oilers, successfully defeated them in the Stanley Cup Finals. (laughs) Dr. Alex's work has been devoted to helping people improve their mental health and financial health by uncovering the deep patterns in their relationship with money that often keep them stuck and suffering. His work really fascinates me, and I have a lot of respect for the deep amount of research and practical application that Dr. Alex holds. As we talk here on this episode, financial psychology is the intersection of financial literacy, emotional awareness, and financial beliefs, in addition to cultural factors. And these all have a play in how we think, feel, and behave around money. Often, financial literacy, which we get to during this episode, only focuses on the external or the exterior behaviors, missing all the things below the surface line. So it misses all the important emotional and psychological things below the water that really influence those behaviors. Dr. Alex focuses on uncovering the truth of our own personal financial story and helps people discard outdated stories and create new stories based on their wishes, not other people's wishes. Dr. Malcuman is married to his wife of 10 years and the father of two rambunctious children. During this episode, we talk about his new book, which I am extremely excited for. Get your copy. It's released on June 1st, Financial Psychology, Restoring Financial Wellness in a Post-COVID Economy. We talk about so many things on this episode, how financial stress is impacting 
So many people, often at unconscious level, and that unspoken stress, to use Dr. Malcumin's words, it's an unspoken pandemic. We talk about the emotions that really drive our financial beliefs and decisions that are often overlooked for more external things like financial literacy. And then he dives into how financial stress is often more than just financial stress. And I really enjoyed this part of the conversation where we dive into identifying in ourselves what is the root cause of stress. We often say, I'm stressed. But as he talks about in this episode, it's important that we dive deeper so that we can label that root cause of the stress. That helps us accept that stress and hopefully move past that stress or learn to dance with it. Speaking of dancing, we talk about dancing and moving past our inner critic. And Dr. Alex talks about how we all have this inner money critic. And we both talk about our own inner money critics on this episode. This conversation was fascinating. I really like his approach to financial psychology with a kind, compassionate, and empathetic point of view. Something I think we need more of in the world of personal finances. So June 1st is coming up. Get your book, Financial Psychology, Restoring Financial Wellness in a Post-COVID Economy. And before we hop into the episode, if you've been enjoying these conversations, please do me a favor, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review. It would greatly be appreciated. And now enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Alex Malkumian. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be back on. Yes, thank you. I am always a fan of your writing, whether it's on LinkedIn or on your financial psychology site. Your blogs are wonderful. I'm excited to dive into this book. But before we get into that, you are based in Los Angeles. As your bio suggested, you've done some work with athletes, and I know sports psychology is an interest from you. And I also learned, prepping for today, that you tore your ACL playing football, suggesting you were a football player. I didn't know that. My question is here. Last week, did your phone get extremely busy as the Edmonton Oilers defeated the Los Angeles Kings in the playoffs? I'm an Edmonton Oiler. I live in Edmonton. So how busy were you? Were they all running into your office crying because the Edmonton Oilers beat them? (laughs) Yeah, between uh, I think between the Kings and the LA Lakers, who are the pride of uh, Los Angeles, of course, not making the playoffs this year. You know, I've definitely received some uh, feedback and and my phone was busy. So (laughs) (laughs) I just had to uh, put that in there because it was a long, tough series. And I'm glad Edmonton came on top. Yes. (laughs) Okay, let's let's actually talk about, I was going to say some important things, but the Oilers are really important to us. Let's talk about something different. Your book, I really enjoyed your book. Your work has actually been one of the one of influences that have led me to investigate and become more curious on the inner side of money versus what my traditional training has been the exterior work as a financial planner. When we look at the stress, I want to talk about money and stress right now. When we look at the stress... The American Psychological Association is telling us that three out of four people report money as being a significant stressor in their lives. According to a paper by Elkins in 2018, 
she suggests 45% of people have no savings whatsoever. The median household, so the people who do have savings, have saved $11,700 on average. I bring these up because we can see that it's obvious our relationship with money tends to bring along stress. And despite access to endless amounts of information online, blogs, books, pertaining to personal finance, this stress continues. Before I shift it over to you, the interesting part about these statistics is they were all reported before 2019. As we know, globally, something happened after 2019 was we entered into this global health pandemic that dramatically impacted, changed, altered, modified our ways of being, thinking, and doing. Why has money been this silent epidemic for so many years that nobody's talking about? And what have you observed or what impacts have you observed on this existing money epidemic since COVID? Thank you for bringing that up. It's literally, you know, bullet points that, you know, we were definitely going to discuss today. I think the biggest context and where I want to start our conversation is to talk about financial stress and say that financial stress is an epidemic in our society that no one is talking about. Out of that, financial therapy and financial psychology, both fields, most people probably don't know about either, are burgeoning fields that have risen out of the need to deal with financial stress. And, you know, you ask the question why, I'm not exactly sure why, you know, nobody's really talking about it. I think it, it kind of talks, you know, goes into the money taboo that, you know, money and sex are equally sort of taboo topics. And actually research have, has shown that people are much more comfortable in talking about uh, their sex lives with their friends and at parties than even talking about money. So that's kind of an interesting little uh, segue. But financial stress is really an underdiagnosed and undertreated issue and has become uh, an epidemic in our country by both uh, mental health professionals as well as financial professionals. Financial professionals and mental health therapists have been dealing with, you know, clients' poor decision-making, their difficulty with overbearing emotions when it comes to money, and, uh, you know, poor financial behavior, not only in these in increasingly difficult times, but as you mentioned, you know, for eons before. What's interesting is now we are seeing, and I feel like, you know, you and I are sort of living in the same bubble of financial wellness and financial well-being professionals, where we have seen more collaboration and bridging between, you know, the financial and the mental health professionals, which has been increasingly able to address financial stress and the ongoing mental health epidemic as well. It's interesting that you bring up the statistics and, and I'd love to kind of get into the data a little bit more. Yeah. When I look at the data, I kind of have a perspective of what do these numbers tell us? What story are these numbers telling us? What's interesting is we have financial stress statistics that come from both sides, the mental health side and the financial side. The National Endowment of Financial Education, which is the financial professionals, they basically claim as of September of 2021 that 84% of Americans reported feeling financially stressed. That's a lot of Americans, a lot of us, right? I mean, predominantly. 
And they've actually outlined specific areas like such as job security and income fluctuation, making rent and paying bills and saving, you know, all the things that we know about. And you just mentioned the stats about so many Americans not having savings and the average saving amount is, you know, fairly low comparatively. The other side of that are the mental health professionals and the American Psychological Association was actually done a what's called a Stress in America survey dating all the way back to 2008. And since the inception of that particular survey, money has been the number one stressor reported every single year except for two years. 2016, the election at the time, it was reportedly a bigger stressor. And then this year, the the global, I guess, <laughs> the pending of, uh, of World War III, <laughs> almost, is definitely a top of mind for most people. But when we really dive into the APA data, it has shown that 65 to about 75% of uh, Americans are stressed about, stressed about money. And... Kind of looking deeper into that data, they also mentioned that younger adults and, and their age ranges between 18 and, and 44 reported feeling stressed much more so than their counterparts, 45 and older. 82% of uh, the younger adults report feeling financially stressed, while only 68% of the older adults. Let's contextualize it. And, you know, again, what do these numbers tell us? And let's compare these numbers to other chronic conditions and other illnesses. So if we look at, for instance, high blood pressure, 65% of seniors are affected by that. High cholesterol, 47% of seniors. Arthritis, 31%. And even if we look at COVID, which we obviously just, you know, endured and went through and are still kind of affected by not to the same degree that, of course, we were, you know, in 2020 and 2021. But according to CDC, almost 60% of the U.S. infected by COVID-19. So comparatively, financial stress is sort of a bigger issue by percentage than even COVID. Obviously, during COVID times, you know, there were <laughs> countdowns on television, on social media about how many people were affected. But the same thing is not happening on our news and, and social media these days in regards to financial stress. Ah, so many, so many different things that I, my brain is going at. But uh, first, I, I, I want to take a step at the top of what you were saying when you talked about financial therapy and, and financial psychology as a solution. My question is going to be pertaining around those, but can you just, for people who might have run away when they heard the word therapy and mm. who don't really, like intuitively, financial psychology, we know what it might be, but from a financial psychologist's perspective, can you define or explain what financial therapy is and what financial psychology is? The way I would define it, financial psychology is our personal psychology around money, how we feel, behave, and think and believe uh, about money. Financial therapy is the application of therapeutic tools to help deal and uncover and discard maladaptive patterns in regards to money, whether they're emotional, behavioral, or cognitive. Thank you. So nothing about skills, which I like, and I'm going to talk about that. 
You talked about some really, really insightful things. Since 2008, APA is reporting money as a top stressor other than those two years that you described. Percent of that demographic between, I believe you said 18 to 44 is impacted by money enough that they're reporting it. These numbers are alarming, but yet they shouldn't be surprising to some degree that money, it impacts everything from direct thoughts to indirect thoughts to our relationships and so forth. And it seems like for so long, our society's belief that the panacea answer to managing the most complex, well, I can't say the most complex relationship, definitely the longest relationship we have. People get divorced, people leave friends. Uh, We can't really run away from our relationship with money. But our answer was rooted in financial literacy. And so financial literacy focused around giving people the skill set and the knowledge and technical skills. But you've just defined something a little deeper on financial psychology and financial therapy. My question is, despite the alarming data that we hear that the stress we feel around money, speak to the emotions that are involved with our finances and how do they prevent us from implementing these financial literacy techniques and how can financial psychology help? I love that question because there's definitely been a push for financial literacy and there's a lot of financial literacy championing happening all across the country. I think the biggest news and the biggest wins happened just recently, I think about a month ago or so. Where, you know, first Florida and now Georgia followed suit in requiring financial literacy classes in order to graduate high school. So now they're part of high school curriculum in order to graduate. So that's definitely a huge win. And I think financial literacy and knowledge in really any area is definitely welcome. But I think, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, it's I look at it as, you know, it's only half of the equation. A lot of people know what to do with money. Well, a lot of people do know what to do with money in the same way that we know not to overeat. And then there's actually a lot of parallels between financial psychology and how we deal with money to diet and exercise industry. Every year, there seems to be a new diet and a new fad and and counting calories or eating less. So the the equation in financial literacy is, you know, don't spend more than you earn and (laughs) you will be good and kind of, you know, invest for the future. And it's really, really simple. But somehow, so many people find themselves in complete overwhelm. They're not able to deal with money in that very logical, straightforward way that, you know, the financial planners and the economists have been teaching us. So that's why I kind of had to look deeper as as a psychologist, as a mental health professional. I always understood that our thoughts, our beliefs, and our emotions have a, a much bigger impact on our financial behavior than the financial industry is letting up to be. Often people cite kind of the lack of personal finance classes, especially for my generation and older, you know, both in high school and college as as a principal source of their financial troubles. So it is promising to see that, again, just the states like Georgia and Florida are really adopting financial literacy classes as a requirement for graduation is really refreshing. However, financial literacy alone only addresses half of the challenge. 
there are so many external factors that influence our financial behaviors. We, we can discuss in depth how, you know, you mentioned a few, but, you know, family and job and our outlook on our finances. It's also important to note that our financial decisions are affected by our cultural narratives, too. There's many different concurrent narratives and stories that are impacting, you know, how we behave with money. It could be relational. What that means is, you know, if you're in a relationship with somebody, your your partner is very good with money, you may feel ashamed that you're not. Maybe your parents didn't teach you a lot about money and you're replicating a lot of the behavior they have done because you sort of don't know any better. So that there's the relational piece. There's a cultural piece that as you mentioned earlier, I live in Los Angeles. There's definitely a, a status culture here in Los Angeles that may not be the same in the Midwest of our country. So different layers that and lenses that impact money all kind of culminate into how and why we do what we do with money. And so with financial psychology and financial therapy, we get to unpack that and really understand where is the pain point? Where is the breakdown? Where is the emotional impasse that is preventing us from doing the, the logical, straightforward thing that the financial planners have been teaching us? I appreciate your response there. And before we started recording, I looked up your previous episode, which we talked a lot about the cultural impacts. So we talked about your story as well of coming vastly different cultural impacts with where, where you were born and coming to Los Angeles. So if anyone's interested, it is episode number 28 as we dive into a bit more of the cultural narratives and the impacts. We're talking about the financial literacy and in financial psychology. And with all of the stories that we bring, you got me really thinking that the system of financial literacy is mostly created by financial planners, people who have experience with financial decisions. They might have effective or already been able to unconsciously maybe develop a healthy relationship with money or very dysfunctional. And that's why they're a financial planner. I kind of say that for myself because that was more so my story. But what I'm getting at is the financial literacy often, I feel, ignores all of those background things that you just talked about. It's this like curriculum that's mass created. And I don't want to discredit it. I think it's wonderful. But I, I really, really believe what you're saying. It's part of the puzzle. Financial literacy, in a way, focuses on this math, not this math, but universal concepts that should be applied to you. And I feel like that should is very damaging because when I can't do it, then I go into self-talk. I'm, I'm bad. I'm feeling guilty, maybe even shameful. Whereas financial psychology seems to focus on the individual and go deeper. So my question is, when you've been working in the clinical setting with clients or through your research, Maybe more so the clinical side. What has been your experience when people come in with this like heavy burden on their chest, heavy enough that they call you, which we know then it's quite heavy at that point. What breakthroughs or experiences have you seen and felt as the clients kind of surrender to this? Hey, wait, there is an emotional side to my money. What can you offer up to listeners who might be like, oh, yes, that emotional toll is really heavy on me. I love that question. Uh, obviously, I'm an empath at heart. I, I chose or <laughs> the profession chose me of being a, a clinical therapist. But, you know, one of the things where I want to start is the research by uh, two amazing psychologists and economists. One is Daniel Kahneman and the other is Richard Thaler. 
what they have done in their research is they linked money and emotions. And the link between those two is extremely deep. So much so that both Daniel and Richard were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in economics for their work in building a bridge between economic and psychological analyses of individual decision-making. And what's the most interesting is that Kahneman's work highlighted that actually 90% of our financial decisions are made based in emotion and only 10% in logic. And so this groundbreaking research really helped to merge the, the fields of economics and psychology. And I, I feel like that's kind of partially what you were talking about, sort of the macroeconomics uh, view versus the more personal and behavioral finance. That's another field of study that's come into existence in about in the last 10, 20 years. All of this conversation has really made me think of a saying, which is, that's why personal finance is personal, right? We have all of these economic concepts that really apply to the macro. But when we get down to the individual, some of those concepts don't apply. And there's, there's a little bit of a taboo concept and, and topic within the field of financial literacy, financial professionals and economics is that emotion is a bad word. It's a scary word. The reason is because emotions make us irrational. Emotions make us do things that we don't think we would or should. <laughs> and I think the biggest tagline that I've heard over and over is, you know, get your emotions out of uh, your money, right? That's the, the premise uh, and the tagline almost, right? With a lot of economists and financial professionals. Obviously, as a therapist, <laughs> that's a lot harder to do. And we're so um, moved and motivated by money. So that's uh, why I've, I've sort of devoted my uh, life's work to studying money and emotions from a lens of financial psychology. You know, that statement right there is part of that overall issue for me that creates that guilt and shame is take your money or take your emotions out of that money decision. Then the person's at home and they're seeing their, their investments plummet. They're seeing their spouse fighting over money and they feel emotional. And then it goes to what's wrong with me. So when you said you're empathic at heart, I think that our industry needs a lot more empathy and compassion. When I say our industry, the financial planning industry, to recognize personal finance is personal. This has got me thinking again, how important is it financial planners take some time to understand their emotions and their delivery, how it could incite the like, guilt and shame. And like for financial planners listening, what advice would you have for them to become a little bit more empathetic and compassionate when they're talking to their clients? Most therapists have to work on themselves and really have insight and understanding of their own inner work and inner processes in order to help other clients. And I would say that the same can be applicable, maybe not to the same degree, but I think to be curious about do our emotions and our, our thoughts and beliefs come from, if you're a financial planner, what's, what has been your money story? What has impacted your own financial journey throughout your life? Those types of insights will help you to be a better professional. I think kind of circling back to our conversation is that a lot of us, really feel scared to feel our emotions because they make us uh, feel irrational. 
It's interesting how the brain works. I felt like you were talking to me. Oh, you, but, oh sorry. You are talking to me, but I thought felt like you were talking about me. And I, I guess I'm realizing I asked that question more so for myself because over the last th- three, four, five years, I've really leaned into my emotions around money and discovered many, many things that were unconscious to me. I know looking back and observing conversations that I had with clients that I wasn't being as empathetic or compassionate as I can be. And I was allowing my unconscious money story that I attach money to power that I believed I needed everything. in. like for someone to come talk to me, I needed to have everything in place. So I would, without client's permission, divulge stories of how I've got it all figured out or just tell the good areas, which at the time I thought it was me trying to show them, hey, if you do these wonderful things, you're going to have like a happy financial life. Our our graph that we give them on the computer is going to go from red to green saying you can retire. And what I realized is, yeah, without going through my own relationship with money and the emotions that I had with money, I probably had some harmful conversations with clients and I was really good at ignoring my emotions. I kept myself busy by running and staying busy and not going there. And what I realized is that for me to do that work, and I I feel like this would be with other people, and this is where I'm going to throw it back to you, is I needed a level of emotional, or yeah, emotional literacy or emotional intelligence to actually understand what these motions are. And I know you talk about emotional granularity, and when I when I read about that, it made me think of myself of actually understanding emotions. I mean, I took classes in business school about emotional intelligence. So I thought I was emotionally intelligent until I had to name my emotions. So walk us through how like the importance of understanding our emotions, emotional literacy, and how does that start to positively, if anything at all, change our relationship with money or our behaviors with money? So I think we have to kind of go back to that statement we just you know talked about, which is we are scared to feel our emotions because they make us irrational, right? They make us feel less than, they make us feel bad, and those are scary things, but... Right. So taking our emotions out of our money is almost equivalent to me asking you to cut off your arm or, or, or your leg or something. They're just part of us. They're a deep part of us. In my research and in my clinical work, I started to hypothesize and, and, and try to figure out how can we help our clients deal with their emotions and what does that really mean? I'm not the type of therapist who, you know, is going to sit here and, and, and say that we have to just embrace every single emotion and feel, you know, the full breadth of every emotion to the fullest. I think it's really important to address, you know, to have an emotional strategy. I understand that negative emotions are the ones that make us irrational. They make our financial decisions completely impossible or they make us get off the, you know, discipline track. And so in my work, I really tried to help my clients strategize and come up with ways to stay more in the middle stay closer to what's called emotional neutrality and to be more even keel with our emotions. And that means sometimes we're going to be, you know, maybe upset, maybe frustrated, but not (laughs) fully, you know, enraged or angry. Positive emotions also can make 
a fool out of us. You know, we've seen people who make really foolish decisions in the name of love. You know, they sell their house. Oh, there's a story about, I don't know if you've seen in the news, but there was a, I guess, a sheriff or, or a warden in a prison in Alabama who sold her house and basically had a prisoner convince her to let him out of prison. And there was a whole, I, I guess, a, a, a chase. Wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so basically she sold her house. I think she even you know, gave him her retirement uh, accounts, something like that. So I guess my point is positive emotions can make us blind to you know, the, the logic and financial truth equally as uh, negative emotions. And let's kind of get back to the idea of emotional granularity. That's a fancy term for really looking at uh, deeper into our emotions. And a great way to contextualize this is financial stress is just a label. It's a huge label, an umbrella label, or stress itself, the word stress, is a label to cover up our emotions. If I may ask you, Sean, right yeah. here live, when you felt you know, financially stressed, you know, maybe it's recently or you know, the last time you, you were stressed, what were you really feeling? underneath that stress? I've started to learn that it's a lack of control. And what specific topic were you were you stressed about? What I'm thinking about right now is financially, I tend to make my inner child feel satisfied. I was a very shy kid and I started, speaking about hockey earlier, I started attributing, because I watched hockey growing up and they seemed like they had everything made. They were happy. They were playing hockey, making millions of dollars. So he attributed like power and money together. And when my belief on how my money should be going doesn't happen, it feels like my power is being taken away. My voice is being taken away. And that's powerful. And so what you're describing is through emotional granularity, we have the ability to discern between different emotions. And for example, we might lie beneath this, you know, stress label is the, the term or the term financial stress it may mean worry over not being able to make your make our ends meet for some uh, clients, or it could be concern about disappointing the kids about not being able to give them Christmas toys for the holidays. There is a different strategy to deal with regret and concern or disappointment. There is a different strategy to dealing with, for instance. Uh, disappointment over not getting an, an anticipated promotion, right? But if you're just saying, I'm, I'm stressed, you don't know what that means. So in order to deal with your feeling of concern about disappointing your kids, you're going to look at your income, your budget, and budget accordingly, which is very different then what you would do as a strategy in order to work on getting a promotion the next time around. But as long as we keep throwing around the word financially stressed, financial stress, financial stress, we don't know what lies underneath it. So on, on that example, I mean, I, I have two kids, so I don't want to discredit when I say this, but if we go deeper, could it be that perhaps it's not necessarily about the present in and itself that maybe it's they actually fear that their kids don't love them as much as they want, or they feel they're not spending as much time with them. And the present is kind of a, a sign of affection. If they don't have that, then that 
super unconscious narrative is continuing on and really has nothing to do with the money? That's a really deep and powerful narrative that's definitely could be conscious or unconscious. On the proverbial couch <laughs> or, or on Zoom, you know, we've had numerous clients who express different emotions through their relationship with money. As I often say, you know, money actually, it was actually Dr. Trockman who mentioned that money is a blank canvas onto which we paint with our emotions, right? So it could be that we're projecting our, our need for love onto money. It could be uh, power and control like you just talked about. So again, money is a blank canvas onto which we project our, our internal uh, world and our, our conscious mind. It seems like if we surrender to it, which is not, it might be easier said than done, but it could be a gateway into that consciousness or a gateway into like those real deep narratives that we're telling about ourselves. And it seems like if you go through that journey, you might learn a lot more than uh, what's one plus one. Exactly. Well, and I love this part of our conversation because I feel like as a clinician, I'd love to go there. But I think most people who come to me are not necessarily interested in diving that deep. And mm -hmm. that's why I kind of kept it more yeah. on a surface level. But you yourself read all the way through that and you, you took it to the unconscious level. So good on you for that. And so there's also a narrative about most people <laughs> seek financial help in order to probably what? Make more money, get richer in, in their mind. That's oftentimes the solution to all their problems. But one interesting thing is that when we talked about that, you know, personal finance is personal. One of the difficulties is there's no cookie cutter approach, right? And what works for some people may not work for other people. What works for me right now may not work for me at a different phase of my life. So it's also situational. Some people might go through life staying at the top layer of their money story. And they might be completely content. And this idea of personal finance is personal. I feel like that logic, I don't know if this is, I'm going to lean on your expertise. That logic can be applied to the depth we go on the psychological level. What are your thoughts on if we just stayed at that top level? Are we able to, it's a very hard blank because it's personal, but I guess, is it okay if people don't want to go deep into the psychology of their money story? In clinical psychology, we have a saying, we have to meet the client where they're at. Right, yeah. So <laughs> if they're not able to go there with us, then we have to you know, address issues in the language that they understand and the language that they speak. And so if they're only able to kind of see things on the behavioral level, there's definitely behavioral changes that can be extremely impactful. I think another perspective I want to bring in is that when we talked about financial literacy being half of the equation, I almost kind of, again, divide things into there's, you know, logical and practical approaches, and then there's the psychological approach. And so when we're dealing with financial stress, it has to be a two-pronged approach addressing both the financial literacy or the practicality of money, the practical lens, and the emotional. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can create spending plans and worksheets and do all kinds of investing research. But if you don't contain your emotions, if you don't have a strategy for budgeting your emotions, and that's kind of a concept that I talk about in my book, then our emotions and, and our negative beliefs, limiting beliefs, have the ability to just completely flood our overall psychology. 
And no matter what we do on the practical side, we could still be discontent. Nothing is enough. I'm frustrated. You know, nothing is going my way. I still don't have enough money. I still keep making mistakes. And with that, there's an idea of the financial inner critic, and which you talked about a little bit earlier on in our, in our podcast. And that inner critic is something that we definitely work on with our clients. You know, they're a sort of an authority <laughs> on everything we do in life. And what's the most interesting part is that we never question the inner critic. The way the inner critic talks to us in our mind, we would never let anybody else talk to us in the same way. It could be berating, it could be shaming to us. You know, you messed up again. I can't believe it. You stepped in the same pothole. And this just kind of is flowing <laughs> out of me because I'm sort of projecting my clients' narratives. And I've thought, I've thought the same thing. <laughs> you know, I'm not immune to any of it. And then my journey is, is uh, you know, one of a, of a clinician who's going through the same financial journey that many others are. So that financial inner critic is a huge piece of the puzzle. And I think... I want to kind of come back to the idea of the emotional budget and the fact that, you know, we, we need to really pay attention and spend our emotions wisely. <laughs> Since time is money, noticing how much time you spend in, in, in financial stress is one way to track your emotional budget. It's actually something that I was going to kind of bring up earlier on when we were contextualizing you know, all the data from the American Psychological Association and the NEFE about financial stress. One way that we can contextualize it is we can look at how much time out of our day we spend feeling stressed and being preoccupied with, you know, financial matters and financial pressure and worry. So I kind of, in preparation for this podcast, I kind of sat there and I thought about it. What I came up with was this, you know, the, the average person is awake 16 hours per day because, you know, we, most of us sleep about eight hours. So if we take that 16 hours per day, we apply the 75% of our day being financially stressed. That leaves us, you know, 12.8 hours of worry about money. 12.8 hours we're worried about money. I mean, that's in a staggering figure to me. The deeper layer, actually, I thought about it, you know, this afterwards is that when we're stressed, we absolutely do not get, you know, enough sleep and we get insomnia. It's actually one of the questions on the financial assessment quotient. Do you ever, you know, wake up feeling stressed or, or do you lose sleep over money? And most of the time it's yes. So if we actually reduce that eight hour number, eight hours of sleep and reduce it down to six, we're almost, you know, at 14 and a half, almost 15 hours a day of being consumed by financial stress. It leads me to believe it's, it's almost like being in a bad relationship, you know, or having a horrible bad roommate when every waking moment you're, you're under some, you know, psychological pressure. So, you know, financial stress is definitely on the rise and something needs to be done about it. And I think this is why I'm so grateful to be talking to you and your audience. And again, that financial psychology is the answer to healing the financial stress epidemic. Well, I, I certainly appreciate the work you're doing because as we can see through the numbers you've talked about and the impact and like when you just break out the hours under that stress, this is not a small, small issue. 
it seems to be, it's not so apparent as a broken leg, where I can physically see a broken leg, that we're going to focus on that. It's in our minds, which is not, we can't observe that. But then it's just got this social narrative around it that you need to have your money figured out. And it's just, there's so many different layers that make it challenging for us to do it on our own. So I, I certainly appreciate the work you're doing. I have a, an episode coming up with two authors who wrote a book looking at Buddhism and money in there. And I just happened to have on my screen some of the notes I was preparing. And it's a quote that's making me think about what we're talking about. And financial literacy, I'm not saying it's perpetuating the problem, but it's focusing on the numbers, almost like the end goal, having a lot of money. And the, the quote I have here is from the Dalai Lama, and it's, whether we're rich or poor, educated or undereducated, whatever nationality, color, social status, or ideology, may the purpose of our lives be happy. And I feel like at some level, financial, maybe it's not financial literacy's job, but it misses that end goal of being happy. Sure, money can make me happier, but I like this financial psychology perspective is because we're going into what those desires and beliefs of that individual person actually are, and then using money as a tool to do those things. I, I want to respect your time, but I, the other thing I thought was really interesting in your book, and we'll see you answer this question according to your time, you bring up this the gig economy. And especially as we go through, come out of the global pandemic, this is increasing more and more. I saw this research article from the University of California that they interviewed 80 gig economy or gig workers, and there were varying reported levels. They were struggling. They were feel like they were just surviving, and some of them were succeeding very well. So they had a diverse subset. But her conclusion in this paper was, and this is a quote, for all its app-enabled Modern infinity, the gig economy resembles the early industrial age. The sharing economy is truly a movement towards or forward to the past. Based on your perspective and what you're seeing with how people are earning differently, spending differently, how is the way people are earning and spending their money in the gig economy affecting their overall financial health? I think the way I want to kind of dive into this is my research has actually been predominantly on the gig economy and what I call the intermittent earners. Initially, when I started my financial psychology practice, it was around the Great Recession and, and people were really you know, struggling and hurting with money, losing homes to foreclosure, you know, losing a third of their investment portfolio and retirement portfolio, things like that. And as I moved on professionally, I started to see more and more of the gig economy clients coming in through my doors. And as I mentioned earlier, as an empath, you know, my heart kind of goes to who are the people that need the most help? And it's actually the contract workers, the freelancers, the gig workers, that demographic are the people who need financial psychology the most. And this is what I cover in, in great detail in my book is that it's a lot easier to have financial planning conversations when you have a stable income. Four things you can do with money, earn, save, spend, and invest and give actually five. But the number one thing is earning because it makes the other four possible. When we start working with you know, freelancers and contract workers, their earning is very much intermittent. And it's just, it, it creates a feast or famine cycle that they're just not ready to deal with. 
Well, some are, and and a lot of a lot of at least my comments were not. Hence, they they、uh, gave me a call, right? And with the gig economy, we have this need to have not only financial literacy conversations but financial psychology conversations. We're looking at. You know, according to the 2020 Gallup poll, there's about 57 million Americans、uh, who are part of the gig economy. As a result of COVID, that number is growing and growing and growing, and it's I think expected to grow by about 43% in 2021 and ongoing. So we're seeing that, you know, on the one hand, the narrative has been we want to be our own boss, we want to have the freedom to earn the way we want. But it comes at a both financial cost and an emotional cost, and all of this research, the research that I've done, has really now posed a question in my mind, which is: it's not just about our relationship with money, but it's about our relationship with earning. Like we talked about a little bit earlier, there's no like cookie cutter way, right? That every person is different. For some people. And I kind of, you know, talk about this in the book. It's there's only so many, so many ways you can slice a pie, right? So if you're under earning, and you're trying to, you know, put together your spending plan and and budget, and nothing ever just adds up. Yes, at that point, the answer is you just have to earn more. Bottom line. But there's also a conversation that earning. Perpetually earning more is not always the answer. You need to know how to manage your money as well, right? And it becomes again increasingly more difficult as an intermittent earner. And the feast or famine cycle of you may not know when the next contract will come. You may not know when you're gonna, you know, go for an audition as an actor. Well, a lot of people are, are publishing their own books now, but you know, get a contract for a book sale, things like that. And obviously, here in Los Angeles, you know the gig economy and the social economy is definitely a big part of the culture here. So we've had to have a lot of both practical and emotional conversations about money with those type of clients. That is that's extremely interesting. On one hand, this gig economy or this desire to break free from the rat race mold, where you know you feel like you're not being creative, you're not being able to fulfill. Your actual desires, maybe more so the company's, has this offsetting impact of this intermittent income, as you call it. Really touches on that. I guess the basic of Maslow's needs is that when I don't have that lifeline or that income to pay for those needs, then I'm probably filled with cortisol and other negative emotions. I guess maybe this is a call for. Basic universal income, <laughs> but who knows what that would do? If that would increase the overall satisfaction, and not enough to keep people not working, but that's a different conversation for a different time. Yes. Prior to COVID, or not prior to COVID, but a lot of times we we hear people talking about how their corporate job is very stressful, their corporate job is depleting their creativity. So people have this desire to get out on their own and enter the gig economy to be a freelancer. This, I guess, aspirational desire to break loose and do what I'm meant to do seems to come with a high emotional and financial stress associated with it. What would you say to people who are teetering on this idea, leaving my corporate job that might have good benefits, good salary, consistent salary, but they feel like they're being creatively depleted 
What would you say to them before they jump into this freelance world where you've said it has high, high levels of financial stress? I think it's really about strategy and planning. You have to weigh out your, your mental health versus how much longer you can hang in there, right? Actually, earlier today, I, I was on social media and then I saw this video post where somebody was, their call to action was, if you're feeling burned out about your job, quit. And there was nothing after that. And then in the comments, there was a lot of sort of sort of blowback, I guess. You know, what is the next step? You know, that's bad advice in a way, right? Again, strategy is key and, and an emotional strategy at that as well. I think what we work on with our clients is something called uh, passion gig versus money gig. It's a combination of, you know, you have, you know, either your day job or something stable that you can hold on to. It doesn't have to be full time, but at least you know that you have an income coming and then you can work on your passion gig and, and other times uh, in the day or in the week. So to address, like you talked about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that we're not fully throwing ourselves into complete survival mode. We're not activating that fight or flight instinct that's part of the feast or famine cycle, right? If you have nothing coming and it's, you know, famine is the only thing you see in your future, that's, you know, a hard place to be mentally. And uh, your mindset is going to be affected accordingly. There's planning around that. And, and the other piece that you kind of addressed that, you know, a lot of the folks that are transitioning to these type of uh, gig economy, we would sort of label them as creatives, <laughs> right? One part of the creative mindset that I've noticed is in my clients is that, you know, they're not necessarily savvy at administration and business and numbers. So having conversations about, if you earned $1,000, did you really earn a $1,000 check or did you actually only earn 600 because 200 goes towards taxes? 200 should be put away for uh, savings. Actually, it should be more than that because for regular earners, financial planners usually say saving between you know 15 or maybe even 20%. But for intermittent income earners, it should be a lot more. It should be about 20 to 30 percent because the fact that a rainy day may come is a lot more likely for, uh, for somebody in the gig economy than uh, somebody with a, you know, a day job and a stable income. So those are the practical financial conversations we're having. And also, when we are talking to them about you know, the, the financial stress, we're talking about really practical approaches. This kind of goes for really not only gig workers, but everybody who is, you know, struggling with financial stress. And, and I have a couple of sort of actionable items that I can, uh, you know, give to your audience. One of them we talked about is, you know, labeling your emotions. And it's part of that idea of emotional granularity, that stress is just this boogeyman and a label that we have to look uh, much deeper into. And then the second piece is my clients always get, get a laugh out of this is uh, scheduling your worry sessions, <laughs> you know, and, and we talk about, you know, you set the alarm <laughs> 7 a.m. and give yourself, I don't know, 15, give yourself 30 minutes to worry, to worry till your heart's content. After that 15 or 30 minutes is over, then you have to stay disciplined and you 
can't worry anymore, right? <laughs> You've uh, spent your your worry time for the day, right? And it's it's funny, and I get that same sort of uh, chuckle and giggle from my clients, but amazingly, it works. Amazingly, when we start disciplining ourselves around our emotions and budgeting our emotions accordingly, we start shining that light on you know our emotional, our inner world, and all of a sudden we don't worry as much. So that would be like scheduling time to hang out with your inner money critic then. Absolutely. As opposed to <laughs> saying, get out of here, never come back in my life. Exactly. And, and the other piece about the financial, financial stress and worry is that it's not just worrying about specifics like, you know, earning more or, you know, making the right decision. It's actually worry, being stressed about being stressed. That's probably... I would say, you know, at least 50%, if not more, of the worry. It's anticipating that stress is coming and not being able to deal with whatever comes. That really, like, but that with labeling, I mean, it, we can see how that's actually a strategy, an emotional strategy, something that we might not be used to hearing. But just back to the, 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 the parent and the gift of the children, I could see how that could easily turn into a, I'm stressed. I'm stressed. Next year at Christmas, I'm stressed. I'm stressed. At birthday, I'm stressed. I'm stressed. Versus trying to label what that emotion is. And then I guess having a little more insight where the focus could shift towards the deeper problem. Absolutely. Well, I think we all need to schedule in our calendars some time to worry. And it makes me think of that. It's, it's a healthy, it's maybe a form of acceptance it's a form of acceptance. It's a form of containing our emotions. And that's kind of circling back to the conversation of macroeconomics and getting our emotions out of our money by being able to contain our emotions, whether they're positive or negative, is you know, a strategy for us to get back into our logical mind and being able to you know, make the right financial decisions. I want to just ask this question about containing and getting back into logical minds. There are so many different triggers that people have that might flood them themselves emotionally where they're not rational. And that's where that rabbit hole of stress goes. What are some ways when that happens to get yourself back uh, when you get emotionally flooded to get yourself back online or back functional? Is it locking yourself in a closet to schedule this worry session? Or are there other things that we could do when we feel that stress in our body that can help us get back rationally? Because I know I speak from experience. When I try to go be logical and explain this, my reason to a person, if I'm emotionally flooded, it doesn't work well. Great question. So I think what you're, you're, you're describing, again, we're going back to sort of the fight or flight mode. But within that, there's something called amygdala hijack. And that term was coined by, I think it was Daniel Goldman, I think a research psychologist. And what that means is the amygdala is part of the emotional part of our brain, the limbic system. And so what happens is when we're completely overwhelmed with, you know, an emotion uh, with a financial trigger, it's like we get into our caveman days and all of a sudden we are afraid of what's coming our way and our eyes get big. We get, you know, completely stressed and our emotional part of the brain floods and overtakes our, our rational part of the brain, the logical part of our brain. And so just that framework and the insight of understanding that that's what's happening in our minds and bodies helps to then reduce our reactivity 
around, I guess it's responding versus reacting, right? And we're full of quote, quotes today, we're, so we're going to go to Viktor Frankl, right? It's a space between stimulus and response where we have our, our, our power. And I butchered that, but I think it's, it's an amazing quote. And the more space we can give ourselves to gain back our faculties and to get back into our logical brain, and could be through more of an empathic approach to ourselves, towards ourselves. You know, this is part of self-care. I know self-care is a big term that's, you know, always flying around there. But self-care doesn't necessarily only mean, you know, bubble baths and walks on <laughs> around the neighborhood. It's, you know, giving yourself the grace to make a decision. It's sitting down and looking at the numbers sometimes that will make you feel good. Like you're, you know, taking care of yourself and planning for the future you. So again, it's really about giving yourself the grace and, and having the insight between stimulus and response. Yeah, that, that ability to not react, certainly something we strive for. And it sounds like you're saying giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt when things don't go according to plan that maybe it's not you. It's just that moment. It's the inner critic. It's the inner critic, yes. The inner Fire critic. the inner critic. <laughs> Can we? Or do we just yes. dance with them? Dance with them, and there's a inner mentor that's in there as well. Oh, okay. So listening to the inner mentor versus the inner critic is uh, yet another strategy. Oh, okay. How about, how about going in and having a conversation with the inner critic at first? Like going back to the wounded self, whatever age that was, and... Telling them, thanks for your help, but I got it from here. Does that work? It does. Yeah. I want to respect your time. Where can people buy your book on June 1st? Coming out, Financial Psychology, Restoring Financial Wellness in a Post-COVID Economy. It's all yours. Maybe the one last parting thought. And yeah, tell people where they can find you and your book for June 1st. So the book is available on Amazon and on my website. June 1st, Financial Psychology Center is my website. And you can find me on social media, whether it's LinkedIn or um, Instagram or Facebook. I look forward to speaking to you in the future. What a great uh, conversation we had today, Sean. Really appreciate you. Thank you. And yes, I encourage everyone to check out your, your work. I, I really enjoy your post. And get the book. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. Now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sail.